Good morning. Welcome to the Oaks Church. My name is Jimmy. I'm one of the pastors here. You guys can go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 15. If you've got a copy of God's Word, Mark chapter 15 is where we'll be. And if you don't, we'll have the words on the screen for you, so don't worry about that. As we flip open to Mark chapter 15, we find ourselves right in the middle of a story. Uh, the greatest story that the world has ever known. You know, the last several weeks we followed Jesus sort of on his way to the cross. And most of us are familiar with this story. All right, we see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then we see him go to the court of the high priest where his own people reject him and condemn him. We see him sent to Pilate, the passive man who condemns him to death. And as we've moved through this story, I think we've kind of moved at a slower pace, wanting to see the details of each and every scene. But even at this pace, the way that Mark writes this book, things seem to be moving so quickly. And perhaps in the back of our minds, we long for things to maybe just slow down, that somehow, some way, Jesus maybe wouldn't have to experience the death that we know he'll die, the death that we deserve. And I find myself wishing as I read this, that, that somehow Jesus didn't have to go through all of this, but knowing all along that the death of Jesus is exactly what I need, knowing that the death of Jesus is what gives me hope and eternal life. And so with heavy hearts, we continue reading on in this passage. We continue in the story of the gospel, and today we're going to read about that final moment. We're going to read about the crucifixion of Jesus that most fateful moment in the history of all things. Everything that has ever existed is pointing to this moment. And if you don't have a biblical worldview, if you, if you don't believe the Bible or know much about the Bible, or maybe you're just ambivalent, you might not realize this, but all of history is pointing to this one moment. Everything before now, history has been groaning, and we've been wanting something to make us whole, to make us right with God, right with our Creator again, but it just doesn't happen. And even now on the other side of the cross, we look back knowing that it was this moment that made everything change. And so right here in our text, we are at the epicenter of human history. We stand at the cross where all things are made new. And yet, even as we do, we do it with a tearful onlooking. Reading this story, reading the details of this text and finding ourselves understanding the tragic nature of it, just feeling horrible about the story. That's how I feel whenever I flip open to this passage. I just, I, I wish that it could have been done some other way, but I know that this is, this is what I need. And as I prepared this week, I really asked myself, you know, this is a text that we're all familiar with. How do I take something that seems just so familiar and maybe teach it, preach it in a fresh way? How do I take something that we all know about and sort of with fresh eyes take a look at it? You know, I think that we continually speak of the cross, especially here at the Oaks Church. We talk about living a gospel-centered or a cross-centered life. Our sermons and sermon application always sort of crescendo at the cross, at the foot of the cross. We, we talk a lot about Jesus and the work that he has done for us, that Jesus you know, we, we talk about the gospel as Jesus standing in my place. Everything that we do points to this moment. So we're all so acquainted with it, right? And so how do I teach this in a, a new way, a fresh way? And as I thought of that, as I thought of how to communicate this in a fresh way, I, I thought to myself that a deeper and more solemn question came to mind, and it's this. How has something so tragically and shockingly profound become familiar. And before I asked you this question this morning, I posed it to myself. How is it that something so appalling, so life-changing has become comfortable to me? And perhaps the same could be said for you today. Maybe the cross has become a little bit too ordinary, a little too familiar? How is it that this, this well-known story that we talk about all the time, how has it become something to which we nod with our heads, but we overlook in our own hearts? 
There's a fear and there's a danger when we claim to be a cross-centered people that we look at the cross so much and just like you can stare at something for too long and everything else goes dark around it and you lose your vision completely, that we look at the cross so much or we allude to it or we talk about it that the, the power and the potency of the cross really loses its power because it becomes too familiar to us, too ordinary to us, so that the shock and the awe of this moment is something that we just sort of nod with our heads but we're overlooking in our hearts this monumental moment that changed all time. So I found myself repenting before God. How, how could I even ask that question? How do I teach something so familiar in a fresh way? No, no, no. The question is, how could something so beautiful become so ordinary? And so when we come to this passage today, I'm challenging you to read this perhaps like it's your very first time, to read this with fresh eyes, to come before the Lord and to know that God, the eternal, ever-existing creator of all things, sustainer of all things, he wrote this story called human history. He put all of this together. And the crescendo, the moment that it all comes down to is right now. And what's happening in this week and the next couple of weeks in our sermon series And may we not nod in our heads and overlook this in our hearts. Even as we read this passage today in just a moment, may our our eyes fill with tears at this, this great story. May it never be too familiar to us. So let's read Mark chapter 15, verses 21 through 32. We're looking specifically at the crucifixion this week, the death of Jesus next week, and then the next week we'll see his resurrection. But in verse 21 we read this. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. And so also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And this morning I want to walk through this familiar story in three short movements. And we begin with this catching up with Jesus on the road to the cross. We see Jesus making his way to a place called Golgotha. And we pick up our story in verse 21. Jesus has been condemned to die. First, his own people, the chief priests and the scribes, in an unfair and an unjust trial, sentenced Jesus to death. And then he's delivered over to this Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate, too, condemns Jesus to die. But Christ's death would not be swift and it would not be humane. It began with an unjust trial, it would lead to a horrific beating. So that by the time we get to our passage where we pick up in verse 21, 
Jesus in his body is likely in such a state of shock and trauma that he's beginning to understand just how horrible this will be. Those looking on are beginning to understand just how horrible this will all be. But the thing is, it's, it's only going to get worse. This is just but a taste of what is to come. After this severe beating, Jesus is now expected to carry his own cross to the place called Golgotha. Now at this time, it was custom that if, the, if there was a condemned man who was being crucified, then this man would carry his own cross. And it's typically the, the cross piece of the cross that he's carrying. And he's carrying his cross all the way to the place where he would be crucified in order to show everyone around him what happens if you go against Roman authority. This is a scare tactic in the Roman Empire. That not only would you suffer and, and be beaten, that you would be condemned to die, but then you would be the one to carry the own method of your death to the, own, to the place of your death. It's a dehumanizing thing to do. It was a reminder for everyone who saw it, as if to say, this is what happens if you oppose Rome. And the Romans wanted crucifixion to be a spectacle for all to see. But little did they know that this crucifixion would become a spectacle for the ages, a way for all people from every nation, tribe, and tongue to see the spectacle of God's grace. And by this point, Jesus would have been understandably exhausted. I don't know if it doesn't even talk about the small things in this passage. Have you ever stayed up an entire night? Maybe you are a mother and father and you've got a newborn and you're like, I know what it's like to stay up all night long. I'm pretty grouchy the next day. Well, don't forget, Jesus didn't get any sleep. His body would be exhausted if nothing happened to him. But then he is taken from place to place, from trial to trial. And then he's beaten 39 times with this whip, this whip that has leather straps attached to it and the small pieces of bone and glass and metal so that whenever the straps hit his back, it tears into his flesh and then when he pulls it back, it rips off stripes from his back so that the muscle and the tissue is exposed, that there's blood running down. And after all of this, 39 times, if that happened to me once, I wouldn't be able to take it, but 39 times in a row, we see this. And it's hard for me not to think of the movie Passion of the Christ. And it's not a perfect movie, but it helps us to get a visual picture. And I remember watching that movie where they've beaten Jesus so badly that his back really has no other place to beat, but they still have lashes left. So they untie one of his hands and flip him over so that they can get his chest and take the skin away from his chest as well. And they've beaten Jesus within an inch of his life. And here they are, they say, here's this cross. And it's not, it's not overly heavy. This cross piece is not something that's super heavy. It's probably about 40 pounds. But Jesus can barely move this cross piece He's in an absolute state of trauma, and his body is going into shock at the loss of blood. There's things that are happening to him physiologically. And we see a new character enter the scene. These Roman soldiers, seeing that Jesus cannot carry his own cross piece, they see this passerby. He's mentioned just three times in the Bible in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Simon of Cyrene, we don't know much about him. Mark identifies this man. He's mentioned here in those two other places, and he's just the one who carried the cross of Jesus. We don't know what becomes of Simon. We don't know if he stuck around for the crucifixion. We don't know a whole lot, but we can infer some things because of what Mark tells us in this text. And that's what's so interesting about these first couple of verses. We read in the text that a very strange detail that Mark provides. It says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now tell me if maybe you're here and you're new and you don't know me and someone says, hey, that's Jimmy, father of Judah 
Savannah and Olivia, you'd be like, okay. But if you know me, you know Judah, Savannah, and Olivia. You know my kids. You've seen them run around. And you're like, ah, oh, yeah, that, that's, that's, their dad is Jimmy. I get that. So I, I think it's, it's really interesting that they're written here because we likely see something come of all of this. We can infer with certain likelihood that Alexander and Rufus would have been familiar to the people who are reading the Gospel of Mark. Now, Alexander is a pretty ordinary name at this time, but Rufus is kind of a little bit more of a unique name. I don't see too many people saying like, oh, I think we're going to name our kid Rufus these days. But, and if your name is Rufus, I apologize. <laughs> but Rufus is a unique name that we actually see mentioned in Romans chapter 16. You know, Paul is finishing up his letter to the Romans. In Romans 16, 13, it says, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And it's my personal opinion that this Rufus is the same Rufus in Romans as is here in Mark. So I think that we can infer with great likelihood that Simon of Cyrene, this passerby, that's co-opted into carrying this cross, that this moment changed him forever. That he saw something that he wasn't expecting to see that day, a spectacle for the ages, so that one day he would tell little Alexander and little Rufus about this man that he saw crucified, this man that would one day be resurrected, so that by the time the Roman church is in existence, we see Rufus a part of that church. But finally, Jesus, along with Simon and the rest of this mob, make it to the hill where Jesus is to die. Mark tells us that this place is called Golgotha, which is just a Greek transliteration of an Aramaic word. And if all of that is mumbo-jumbo to you, it just means that Golgotha is just what it sounds like in Aramaic. And in Aramaic, Mark tells us it means a place of a skull. And it's so interesting to me to, to just note briefly about how this moment has even changed the way that we speak. It's changed our language. The Aramaic word Golgotha simply means place of the skull. It's now synonymous with the crucifixion of Christ. It's in songs that we sing. In Latin, the word for skull is Calvaria, which is where we get our word Calvary from that we sing about. This place Golgotha Calvary. This was the place where condemned men were brought to suffer a horrific and gruesome death on display for all to see. But here with John 3, 14 in the back of our minds, we see that this place Calvary, this, this place Golgotha would never be the same. That just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness for the salvation of all who would look at it, so also Jesus is now lifted up on this place called Golgotha, this place called Calvary, so that all who see him might believe in him and be saved. This hill changed the course of human history. And Mark spends just a, a couple of verses describing a scene that took far longer to happen than it does to read. You see, every single step of Jesus was a step closer to the agony of the cross. But each step that Jesus took on the way to the cross was agonizing in and of itself. And as we read these first two verses in our passage, we see a paradigm here of what it means to follow Jesus. We see Jesus, the suffering Messiah. Well, how should we respond to the suffering Messiah? Well, this character, Simon of Cyrene, points us to the reality that as Christians, we are called to identify with Jesus in his death and so also carry our cross each day. And you might be thinking, okay, pastor, I'm called to identify with Jesus in his death and carry my cross. I get it, but, but what does that mean? What does that actually look like? I hear that all the time, but no one says what it means. You see, the cross of Christ puts a demand on our lives. Carrying the cross means that we cannot love the world and love Jesus simultaneously. We cannot at the same time claim to know and love Jesus and at the same time be a friend of the world and all of its pleasures. You see, the cross will not permit a half-hearted devotion. And in our culture, in our city, in our 
church, I think that one of the bigger problems that we face today is a half-hearted devotion, a lukewarm affection for God, a Christianity that doesn't fully consider what it means to take up our cross and to follow him. You see, picking up your cross and following Jesus is not arbitrary. It looks like something. And for you, it might look like forsaking sins that have become an ordinary fixture in your life. You know, carrying your cross means that the way you speak to others will necessarily change. The way that you speak to your spouse, the way that you speak to your roommates, your friends, your family. Is it marked by kindness and patience? Carrying your cross means that your sexuality exists to glorify God and not to gratify your flesh. Do you struggle with pornography? Do you struggle with sexual immorality, with promiscuity, with dressing a certain way that accentuates something that ought not be accentuated? Our sexuality is meant to glorify God. It's not meant to gratify ourselves and others. That's what it means to carry your cross. Carrying your cross means that you steward your time in such a way that you prioritize your time with the Lord and God's people, that you would get up and that you would read the Bible, that you would see this revelation of God and that you would study it, that you would know that God's people gather on the Lord's day every week and the only thing written in pen on your calendar needs to be this time because you understand how important it is because God commanded it in our lives. That's what it means to carry your cross. It means prioritizing biblical community, finding your primary community here and not other places that will tempt you to to be worldly. And for others, carrying your cross may mean answering a call to pastoral ministry when there are far more lucrative options from a worldly perspective. Carrying your cross may mean leaving the comfortability of America to go to where they've never heard the gospel so that we might see people from every nation, tribe, and tongue proclaiming the name of Jesus. Carrying your cross may be ridding yourselves of certain technological comforts that you've grown accustomed to on your smartphone because you recognize and realize that your purity is worth far more than your technological comfort. You see, for all of us, carrying your cross means something. For all of us, it means becoming students of God's word, centering our lives and our hearts on the Bible, learning about who God is and what he has done for us. Carrying our cross means that we know Jesus intimately because we read about him in the Bible deeply. I was meeting with Brooke and Holden, who are here today, and I heard something just so profound that and I said, and I said, that's going to make it into my sermon tomorrow. And Brooke was talking about how when she grew up, when she grew up, she was at a, a youth conference or something like that. But she heard this speaker say, how many of you believe and trust every word of the Bible? And of course, in like a Christian camp environment, everyone's like, yes, I do. And I'm sure if I did that today, pretty much every hand would go up, right? And then the speaker said, how many of you have read every word of the Bible. And Brooke said, that just hit me. And her testimony was that from then on, she, she desired to be a student of the word, to read the Bible in its entirety. And I wonder if that's true for us today. Carrying your cross means knowing the one who bore your sins on that cross. That means reading your Bible, something so simple. It means a variety of things to carry our cross. But even as we look at the story, we're reminded that carrying our cross, it comes at a cost. The cost of our comfort, the cost of our cultural acceptance, the cost of worldly pleasures. And yet when we see all of this from an eternal perspective, that question comes to mind. Why would I forfeit my soul to gain the entire world? Why would I invest in 60 or 70 or 80 years of comfort in this life when I have eons and eternity to look forward to? Count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. It will require much of you, but the reward is far greater. 
Simon of Cyrene here is a picture and a reminder of what it means to carry our cross. But of course, the reason that the cross has meaning is not because of the object itself, but because of the one who was nailed to it. In the second movement of our text, we see the crucifixion of Jesus. After the road to the cross, Jesus finally arrives at the place of the skull at the time known as Golgotha. And upon his arrival, he's offered this mixture of myrrh and wine, which would have numbed his pain and it would have also expedited this entire process. And this would have been customary for the Romans to do at the time, perhaps the only humane thing that they would have done during a crucifixion. And yet Jesus here refuses this mixture. He refuses this mixture so that he might suffer and endure the full weight of the cross. He's not interested in numbing his pain. He's not interested in expediting this process. He's interested in taking the full penalty of our sin, knowing that his suffering will bring us peace. In verse 24, Mark gives us an incredibly short description of this mode of death. Just four words. And... They crucified him. Just four words to describe this horrific and heinous mode of execution. Of course, at the time, Mark's readers would have been well acquainted with this form of death. They had perfected it by this time. But we've probably, all of us here, have never seen an actual crucifixion. So... In order for us to get a better picture, I want to tell you what was happening on that cross. I want to tell you physiologically what was happening to Jesus as Mark describes it with just four words. You see, crucifixion is one one of the most torturous ways that a human being can die. By this time, the Romans had indeed perfected this fatal method of execution. You know, after there was a battle that the Romans took place in in the first century, and they took 6,000 prisoners they, they defeated this man named Spartacus. There's a lot of history about it, but they took 6,000 prisoners. They had killed so many in the battle, but there's 6,000 men, soldiers. And what they did is they wanted it to be a spectacle, to remind people that you don't cross Rome. And so for 120 miles, starting at the city gates of this city and progressing 120 miles down the road, they crucified every single one of those 6,000 soldiers. So that about every 30 yards, there's a man in agonizing pain waiting to die, sometimes taking days to happen. The Romans were masters of death. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to inflict the maximum amount of pain and suffering. Because you see, when when a person is crucified, they're either nailed or tied to a cross. And in Jesus' case, we read that he was nailed through his wrists and through his feet. And his body would have been positioned so that breathing would become very laborsome. In fact, his body weight would have pulled down on his diaphragm so that in order to exhale, Jesus would have to pull his body weight up by the nails in his wrists and the nails in his feet just to exhale. So that every single breath would have been an unimaginable amount of pain. So much so that we've created a new word in our English language. The word excruciating comes from this mode of execution. In addition to the pain of the nails and the labored breathing, the blood loss would have created an insatiable longing for water. His body would have been in a state of shock. And on top of the effects of the crucifixion, his body is already reeling from the flogging that he just endured. Chunks of flesh and skin would be missing from his body as he's nailed to this cross. The blood loss at this point would leave him in critical condition. And as you study, I found one biology and chemistry professor who told us a little bit more what was happening physiologically. For the benefit of all of us here, we should know what's happening. And certainly those of us or those who, of you who are in the medical field are well acquainted with what is happening. See, Jesus is nailed to the cross through his wrists in between bones so that his body weight could be supported. You see, if they nailed his hands, 
his hands would have been, they would have ripped through and, and it would have failed. So they had the nail in the wrist in between these two bones. The nail would have been seven to nine inches long and as it is nailed into his wrist, it would damage major nerves to the hand resulting in an intense and a continuous agonizing pain. And once Jesus' wrists are nailed to that cross piece, his knees would then be fixed to the bottom. They would be flexed at a 90 degree angle and a nail would be driven through the tops of his feet. Sort of right where the tops of your shoes are on yours. And similar to his wrists, the nail that is driven seven to nine inches long through his feet would have severely damaged the nerves in his feet so that he is experiencing a constant and horrific pain. And then the cross has to be raised. And as the cross is raised, Jesus' body, with his arms outstretched, would have pulled down on the nails. His shoulders and his elbows in this moment would have all dislocated. His arms would be six inches longer than they ordinarily were because of the dislocation. Crucifixion amidst all of the blunt force trauma creates primarily a pulmonary issue, a breathing issue, a lung issue, where breathing becomes labored and difficult. Jesus is able to breathe in. That's not the problem. The problem is exhaling. Because of the position of his body and his diaphragm, Jesus had to push up on his wrists and his feet just in order to exhale. The difficulty in exhaling would then lead to a very slow and torturous form of suffocation. Carbon dioxide would build up in the blood, resulting in a high level of carbonic acid in his bloodstream. The body would respond instinctively in that moment, triggering the desire to breathe. So even as Jesus is unable to breathe, his body longs more and more, breathe, breathe, breathe. But breathing is so excruciatingly painful, his mind is telling his body the opposite. Now, while all of this is happening, there's significant cardiovascular problems occurring as well. The heart beats faster and faster so that it, what little oxygen is available in his blood can be found. The decreased oxygen would cause, cause damage to the tissues and the capillaries, and they would begin leaking watery fluid from the blood into his tissues. This is why when we read after Jesus died, when they pierced his side, blood and water flowed out. It's because this is what's happening physiologically inside of his body. And this results, this buildup of watery fluid results in a buildup of fluid, particularly around the heart and around the lungs. And his lungs would begin to collapse. His heart would begin to fail. His dehydration would become severe. And the inability to get sufficient oxygen to the tissues would essentially suffocate Christ. The decreased oxygen also damages the heart itself, which leads to cardiac arrest. In severe cases of cardiac stress, the heart can even burst, a process known as cardiac rupture. What we know about all of this physiologically is that Jesus most likely died from a heart attack, a massive heart attack brought about by all of these different physiological components. And all of these details of his death, they're hard to imagine. I'm not a doctor, but it sounds really terrible. I know many of you are in the medical field and you're just nodding your head as if to say, yeah, that's a terrible way to die. His pain would have been agonizing. And in all of those descriptions of what's happening physiologically to our Savior in this moment, you might think to yourself, man, that's, that's pretty serious Maybe it happened at least quick. Well, verse 25 in our text tells us that he's crucified at the third hour. And then we read that Jesus does not finally give up his last breath until the ninth hour. And so to imagine the excruciating pain for six hours, maybe longer, 
to understand that the minutes and the seconds of all of this are going by so slowly, that he's so completely aware that he's taken no mixture of wine and myrrh to deaden the pain, and that this is the Son of God. It's hard to imagine. And in all of this suffering and all of this pain, why, why would anyone willingly do this? Why would anyone go through such a painful and torturous ordeal? And the question of the cross leads us to the answer of love. Why did Jesus go through this? Well, Jesus refused the wine mixed with myrrh so that he might take the full weight and the full penalty of our sin. You see, he bore the full punishment of your sin for you. That sin that you sinned yesterday, that thing that you did for the hundredth time. Why would anyone take all of the mocking? Well, he was mocked by the guards They cast lots for his garments so that by Christ's nakedness and shame, we might be clothed and dignified. Isaiah 61.10 reads, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And all of that happened because of his Shame, his nakedness, his suffering. Jesus was numbered among sinners in order to bear the sins of his people, crucified between two robbers to fulfill what Isaiah 53, 12 says. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. Jesus was rejected as king of the Jews so that he might become king in the hearts of his people. Jesus is mocked and reviled so that we might be accepted into the kingdom of God. Psalm 22, 7 says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And in this moment, Jesus fulfills this for you. Christ was pierced. He was crucified. He was tortured so that we might not taste the same death. Isaiah 53, 5, he was pierced. Why? For our transgressions. For that wayward thought yesterday. For that unkind word to your spouse. For that spirit of jealousy in your hearts. There is none righteous. Every single one of us have sinned. So it took a sacrifice of this magnitude because our sin is that horrific. Whatever your disposition may be this morning, we need to look at the cross together. Jesus suffered the cross for you. And so let me ask you, are you you struggling with doubt this morning? Well, look no further than the cross as the greatest proof of God's love for you. Are you fighting anxiety today? But behold the cross of Christ. Rest in his grace. Know that whatever you have going on, know that your greatest need has been met in the cross and you can rest. You can be free from anxiety. Are you struggling with shame? Even now mindful of that sin. That sin that you promised would never happen again. Do you feel a great sense of guilt because of that besetting sin? Well, look no further than the cross. You see, the cross wins your justification. But the same grace that saved us is the same grace that sustains us. The same blood of Christ that crafted salvation in our hearts so long ago is the same blood that is shed for that sin yesterday. And for that sin tomorrow. See, whatever we might be dealing with, if we are hurting, if 
we are doubtful, if we're full of shame, if we're anxious, we need to look to the cross. Because it's in the cross that we see the most undisputed evidence that God is good, that he loves his children, that he, that he thinks of you. That during those six hours he suffered, he's thinking of you. That he cares for you. That he, he values you. The Son of God values you. Is there any greater validation of his love? You see, when we look at the cross of Jesus, our fear melts away. Our anxiety turns into rest. Our insecurity turns into trust. Our anger turns into joy. Our depression turns into gladness. Our struggles are met with grace. Our sin is met with the blood of the Son of God, and we are made whole. If you're feeling hurt this morning, look no further than the cross. It is the most incontrovertible evidence that God loves you. There's comfort in the cross. There's hope in the cross. There's rest in the cross. But church, none of these wonderful things become reality unless we respond to the cross in the right way. So in these final verses, we, we see the third movement of our text, the, the response to the cross. In these final few verses, we're reminded that Jesus, Jesus is not alone. His disciples had abandoned him, but his mockers had followed him. And the two thieves on either side of him likewise joined in the mocking. Now real briefly, if you notice in your Bibles, you might be missing verse 28. That's okay, just briefly. I, I don't want to go too far to the side here. That's not unusual or incorrect. Here in this chapter, the earliest manuscripts don't include verse 28. But some of the later transcripts do. And what, what happened is in Luke's account, what you have in verse 28 is in Luke. And so someone probably maybe copied it wrong in later manuscripts, but they reflect that here. And I don't want to get too bogged down in it, but I also don't want you to be confused as we read through this. If you've got more questions about it, ask your MC leaders this week. We can talk about that textual variant and all of that. But what's important here in these final few verses is that we see a few characters come around. We see two robbers crucified on either side of Jesus. They revile him. They mock him. Of course, in other accounts, we know that one of these two will, in fact, repent after hours of suffering. And he will repent and he will be with Jesus in paradise that very day, showing us that the grace of God can meet any sinner. If you're here this morning and you think, I've, I've sinned too much, I'm too far gone, that's not true. If these thieves on either side of Jesus are not too far gone, then neither are you. But here we also see the chief priests and the scribes, these characters that we've seen all along in the Gospel of Mark. From the very beginning, they finally get what they're after. And now is their moment of celebration. And their celebration turns into mocking, to reviling, to flexing on Jesus in this moment as he suffers. And the entire time that Jesus is experiencing this physiological suffering, he's also met with all of this mocking. And Jesus is the Son of God, and he knows all things. And this mocking is absolutely ridiculous. It's kind of like when you know the answer to something and it burns inside of you because it's like, I know that's like this person thinks they're right and they're definitely not. And I want to destroy them in this. But Jesus doesn't do that. No, he's silent. He allows them to mock. And what's so ironic is the passerby is recalling this saying that Jesus said. Jesus said, you know, that I will destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And so they say, hey, 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 you remember you said you would destroy the temple and you'd raise it up in three days' time. Doesn't look like you're going to be able to do that now, does it, Jesus? Looks like you were wrong on that one. But of course, they didn't realize that exactly what Jesus said is happening right now. He wasn't talking about the temple temple. He was talking about his body, the temple temple. 
that it will be destroyed. And we know that his body is being destroyed right now. But that three days later, it would be raised back to life. Even their ridicules are completely incorrect. They ridicule him as if Jesus wasn't able to do what he claimed. He saved others. Let him save himself, but I guess he can't. Knowing in that moment that he could have called his angels to uh, to assist him in a moment. That just as he raised others from the dead, just as he healed people on the brink of death, so also he could have healed himself with one thought. The chief priests and the scribes, they join in. They say, come down from the cross so that we might see and believe. And of course, we know this is not a genuine proposal from these villains. I would imagine that even if he did, they would have claimed that he's possessed. They would have come up with some excuse. They still would have doubted Christ's divinity. Because you see, the call of Christ to faith is not just believing in something that you've seen. That's not what faith is. No, faith is believing in something that you haven't seen. Sight does not always lead to faith, but for the Christian, faith always leads to sight. And we're reminded of what Jesus tells Thomas after the resurrection in John 20, 29. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you and me. And as we look at these final verses, we see what's happening in this text. Really, we see the revelation of Jesus right here in the middle, this crucifixion, this horrific and gruesome death. And then on either side of this story, we see two ways to respond to Jesus. To revile him, to mock him, to shamelessly wag your head, to think, oh, this guy's just the worst. Or to pick up the cross and identify with Jesus in his death so that you might identify with Jesus in his life. And you see, all of, the, all of the emotions and the feelings that we feel about the cross, everything that we're feeling when we see the revelation of Jesus, none of it matters unless we respond the right way. Because you can hear all of this right now. You can hear this. You can be moved. You can feel a certain emotion. But if you don't respond in the right way, what does it matter? We see that the main action step of this entire passage is that the crucifixion lays claim to our lives and bids us to carry our cross for Christ. The crucifixion means something for your life. You see, the cross of Jesus will never be neutral. The cross demands a response. And not responding is a response in and of itself. And so I wonder this morning, how are you responding to the cross. What do you make of all of this? You might think, well, I've heard all this before. It's so familiar. May we be cut to the heart if that's the case. Maybe you're here this morning and you just think, I don't know about all this. I don't think I can believe in something. It seems made up. You see, the fascinating thing about the cross, too, is that we can say a lot with our mouths. We can claim the name of Christ. We can claim that we're saved. We can claim to know Jesus, but it's our actions that prove our answer. Our actions cannot and will not save us, but they will certainly reveal what is in our hearts. So I wonder what we talked about earlier. One of the biggest problems facing the church is maybe not disbelief, but just sort of a lukewarm affection Claiming the name of Jesus with your mouth, but with your actions, you look no different than the world. There's not really a discernible difference between you and those who do not know Christ. Let me just say, today is the day of salvation. If if you're wondering where you're at in all of this, don't leave today without talking to myself or Terry Lee or one of our other pastors. I wonder if there are some here who might not mock Jesus with their mouths, but their lives just stand as mockery. Claiming the name of Christ with your words, but your actions 
show that you're just like the world. Let me just ask, is, is eternity worth the risk? Is pursuing that lifestyle worth the risk? You might be right, I might be right. Is it worth the risk though? See, the Bible teaches us that on the final day, there's gonna be many who say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, did I not do miracles in your name? I don't know how many of y'all have done miracles recently. I haven't. Did I not do great signs and wonders for you? And he's gonna say to those people, depart from me for I never knew you. Do you know Jesus? Not do you know about Jesus. Do you know him? Do you have an intimate relationship with Jesus? Do you long to be in his presence? Are you abiding in him? There's no more important question, no more important consideration for you today than that very question. And for those of us who are believers, those of us who abide in Christ, I wonder, are you taking up your cross daily to follow Jesus? Are you choosing to identify with Christ in his death so that you might identify with him in his resurrection? We see Simon of Cyrene helping to carry the cross of Jesus we see a picture of discipleship, what it means to follow Jesus, to take up our cross and identify with him in his suffering so that we might identify with him in his resurrection. But take a step back for a moment and see that discipleship is not about doing things for Jesus, but instead discipleship is about where our hope lies. Where is your hope this morning? Where do you go for peace? You see, when we carry our cross, church, we're not doing Jesus a favor. He doesn't need us. No, we are identifying with him in his death so that we might be identified with him in his life. We read this whole story. We see this revelation of God. We see this picture of discipleship. What does it all mean? I think we're tempted to see Simon of Cyrene, and maybe just say, I need to be like that. But you see, it's not Jesus who needs Simon's help. But rather, it's us who need help. And it's Jesus who's stumbling to Calvary to bear a cross that we deserve and to die a death that should be ours. It's Jesus who's coming to help Simon, and it's Jesus who's coming to help us. Let's pray.